My next guest is the best-selling author of a number of history books. Simon Winchester began his writing career as a journalist in the U.K. and has moved on to writing books with grand themes often, from map-making to the history of the Pacific Ocean, for example. His latest book looks at an equally daunting subject, land. How did we get to a place where we parcel, survey, sell, and speculate on land? How can anyone legitimately claim to own a portion of the earth? Simon Winchester's new book is Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. Simon Winchester joins me on the line. Welcome. Well, thank you, Alan. Good afternoon. Where are you joining us from? And more importantly, do you own the land that you are currently standing on? Well, I do own the land. Um, it's in western Massachusetts, and we have an enormous windstorm going on at the moment, and I've got, I can see about five trees that have fallen down. and We've lost all our electricity except this one telephone line, so I'm delighted to be able to talk to you. Well, I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're able to connect. How possibly can you find a narrative to be able to thread a book out of an, a subject as large as land? Well, the land I'm on at the moment actually isn't the first piece I bought. I bought the first piece about 50 miles away from where I am now in New York State, in Dutchess County. And I bought that when I moved to America from Hong Kong, where I'd been for the previous 15 years. And um, it wasn't a particularly attractive piece of land. It was the north face of a mountain and... Uh, lots of nice trees and animals and rivers and things, about 150 acres of it. Um, and I didn't think too much of it, except when I had to pay the tax bill every year, until 2011, I think it was, when I became a citizen of this country. Don't ask me whether that was a wise move or not, <laughs> with Mr. Trump coming into power, but nonetheless, I did. And then all of a sudden, the owning of land of a part of the United States, part of the country that I'd become a citizen of, all of a sudden seemed interesting and important. And so I started looking into the history of this little chunk of land that I had. And I went to the archives and saw all the title deeds that the one I owned and then the one owned by the person before me and the person before him. And slowly they became no longer... Um, printed but typewritten and then no longer typewritten but written by hand. And slowly, as you went further and further back, and the documents became more and more ragged, they became handwritten, not in English, but in Dutch. And then the people who were, as it were, giving the land or selling the land to the new people weren't writing signatures because they couldn't. They wrote an X or a little picture of a deer or a lamb or something, and I realized that these people were the original settlers. They were Mohican Indians. And the crucial thing is that to them, the idea of owning the land was utterly alien. As someone said, you can no more own the land than you can own the breeze. So what had happened that changed the sort of human attitude to land from, no, you can't own it, to, yes, I'm going to own it and I'm going to put barbed wire around it and I'm going to keep people off it and put no trespassing signs up. What 
shift went on and what did that mean for the world. So it was entirely possible to draw a narrative thread once you start thinking about it. That's interesting. I often think of of the development of property rights and in, in, in Western society, we, we tell ourselves that, that property rights and the establishment of property rights, you know, so that the monarch can't just come in and say, well, no, no, this is my land and you're gone. But that that was the basis of the foundation of Western society. Is that, does that line up to, to what you've seen? Yes, it most certainly does. I mean, it all really began in England. I mean, I'm English originally and we're to blame for just about everything that's gone wrong in the world. And um, the first what were called enclosures acts were passed in the early 17th century in 1604. And as it happens in a village very close to where I went to boarding school in Dorset in southwest England. And up to that point, land was owned in common. You know, you had a village and the fields around it didn't have hedges or fences and everyone that had cattle or pigs or grew turnips. It was all sort of smooshed up together and very inefficient because the cows would walk on the cabbages and the pigs would eat the turnips. And so in the early 17th century, someone, some forgotten person, decided, no, 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 this is not the way to have efficient farming. You need to have fences. People need to own the land they have so that Someone can say, I'm putting pigs in this field, and someone else can say, I'm putting turnips on that field. And as a result of that, agriculture became much more efficient. People were fed properly. They weren't going hungry anymore. But what that did mean was that a lot of people who had hitherto enjoyed the freedom of common land all of a sudden found they didn't have any access to the land at all. And so they were very disgruntled, and they went off either to the cities or they crossed the ocean and came to the New World, as it was then called. And the irony is it, of it is that they knew of this new concept of ownership because they had been dispossessed. So what did they start doing the moment they got to Massachusetts or Virginia or Australia or New Zealand? They started dispossessing the people that already lived there, First Nation people, Native Americans, Aboriginals, Maoris. So beginning a series of conflicts that have lasted to this very day. So land ownership, beginning in England, caused, yes, the, it was the basis of capitalism, no doubt about that, but it also caused a lot of problems. I'm speaking with Simon Winchester, author of a new book called Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. We talked about Western society... What have other societies done with land and land stewardship? Well, the place that I'm particularly interested in towards the end of the book is is New Zealand. I mean, New Zealand, um, the most recently inhabited part of the world. I mean, there was no one living there until about 700 years ago, and then the Polynesians found it and settled it, and they were the Maoris. Then along come the British 1840, they signed this famous treaty, the Treaty of Waitangi, where all the land of New Zealand, which at the time belonged to or was superintended by these Polynesian people, the Maoris, suddenly became the property of, guess who? Queen Victoria in England, 10,000 miles away. Seems 
utterly bizarre, at least that this remove it does. But the interesting thing about New Zealand is, and it still hasn't happened in Australia or Canada, or certainly not here in the United States, is that slowly, very slowly, and beginning in the 1970s, the Maoris, the government in New Zealand, has started to give the land back. And so it, it's happening at a glacial pace, and the Maoris aren't as happy as they might be. But slowly, they're getting the land that was taken away from them back again. Now, will that happen to the First Nations in Canada? Will it happen to the, uh, the Choctaw or the Cherokee or the Shoshone down here? I doubt it, and not for a long time. But New Zealand is a place, when you're talking about land reform, that people really ought to have a look at. What is the future of, of land ownership, uh, especially as we you know, move towards a more vertical society where the actual patch of ground might not be as important, but now you're owning you know, a portion of a building in, you know, in, a, in the sky? What do you see as the future of land ownership? Well, it's a very interesting question. I mean, uh, where to begin? I, I, the biggest landowners in the world, well, the very biggest is an Australian uh, lady, um, the, the two Americans, Ted Turner and John Malone, both cable television um, moguls, and they generally allow people on their land. But the villains of the piece at the moment are a couple of West Texans called the Wilkes brothers, who are buying up land like there's no tomorrow because they made a huge amount of money from the fracking industry. And they were bought out by the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund for $4 billion. They've bought up 750,000 acres already. And the, the crucial thing is that they're forbidding people going on it. And that is exposing a big sort of dichotomy now between people in America, say, who say, I own land and I'm not going to let anyone on it, or people in, let us say, Sweden and Norway and Denmark, where there is a lifelong, historically very long-term attitude called Almondsratten, all men's rights, in which they say that everybody, no matter who owns the land, can walk on it, can play on it, can disport themselves on it, so long as they behave properly. So that's going to be the, the big dilemma over the next few years. Will land be privately owned, fenced off, and exclusively held? Or will, as in, and it's beginning in Scotland, will people say, no, if you behave yourself nicely and don't sort of fire guns and behave, you know, dig it up and pollute it, you can use all of the land. And that, I think, is what's slowly going to happen, that the European model will, whether it'll come to the North American continent, I don't know, but generally speaking, Australia, New Zealand, other parts of the world may be everyone can wander about as they please on the land that belongs to everybody. Whether it happens in North America, though, is another story. Canadians are, are often sort of one foot in Europe and one foot in America. And it's difficult to imagine the individualistic uh, nature of America um, lending itself exactly. to... Exactly. And I've spent a lot of time in Newfoundland recently, and I get the feeling that the Newfoundland attitude to land is somewhat similar to the Scottish and the Scandinavian attitude. 
very different from the attitude you'll find in Texas and Idaho and Montana. To me, being European, it's the European attitude to land, which I think, I hope, triumphs in the end. What's next for Simon Winchester? Uh, is there a history of air that you were looking at? Very good question, but no, <laughs> it's a history of the diffusion of knowledge. So it's um, with knowledge being everywhere on tap, you know, Google and so forth, Wikipedia, no longer lodged in our brains. Will that risk the future of wisdom? Because if you think of wisdom as being knowledge multiplied by experience, if we don't keep knowledge in our brains, then no matter how old we are, we may not, those of us, I don't count myself among them, people who are wise, there may be fewer of them. And that would not be a good thing for society. So the book, well, I'm only early days, I'm calling it Knowing What We Know, A History of the Diffusion of Knowledge and the Risk to the Future of Wisdom. Sounds absolutely fascinating and the kind of book that only you could attempt to write. Simon Winchester, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much. That is Simon Winchester, author of Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. My name is Alan Carter. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with me this hour. That is a fascinating interview. If you just tuned in in the middle of it, if you wanted to hear it from its, uh, from its start, all of it, uh, we post that uh, on our uh, website. You can find that also on Twitter at A. Carter Global. If you happen to be a Twitter type, I'll post it on my Facebook as well. 